Hello, hello. Welcome to Life and Things Podcast. My name is Corinne. Just going to wait for a few minutes to see if anybody jumps on. I've decided that I'm going to start trying to come on at different times during the day um, just to see what times work best and when I get the most amount of listeners. Um, That way I can kind of cater this thing a little bit. So yesterday I came on at about one o'clock and right now and one o'clock being Eastern Standard Time. And right now it's 9.40 Eastern Standard Time. I don't know if any of you have put up your Christmas trees yet, but that's something I still got to do. So today I'm going to be focusing on cleaning out an area of the house to put up the Christmas tree. get started now. So first, I would like to start by going over a couple of good news items. So first is the daily good news that inspires. That's on dailygood.org. And the article's title is Six Habits of Hope by Kate Davies. It states that the first habit of hope is being present. This means paying attention to whatever is going on and not going on.
and not getting sidetracked or distracted. In other words, living where life is actually happening rather than in our heads. To understand the difference between being present and not being present, think of a time when you felt completely alert and aware. What was happening? Where were you? What did you see and hear? Chances are you can probably remember the situation very clearly. Then think of a time when you were completely preoccupied by all the thoughts in your head. Perhaps you were upset or worried. Perhaps you were planning or fantasizing. Perhaps you were blaming someone for something that they did, or perhaps you were justifying your own actions. Now ask yourself the same question. What was happening? Where were you? What did you see and hear? It's probably a lot more difficult to recall the precise details of the situation. And this is the difference between being present and not being present. And it's a big one. Now consider how you felt when you were in the present moment and when you weren't. Chances are you feel much more alive and alert when you were in the present moment. One warm summer evening when my son was about eight years old, and this is according to this Kate Davies, by the way, I'm reading her article. <laughs> we were walking on the path beside the Ottawa River, close to where we lived. Actually, my son was on his bike and I was ambling along about 50 yards behind him. I was completely lost in my own thoughts and not present to him or our surroundings. And suddenly he turned around, looked at me and said, check out those raccoons in the bushes. I roused myself from the reverie and looked where he was pointing, but I had missed them and only saw the branches falling back into place behind the rapidly departing animals. I did not see them because I was not present. It's interesting in this article because I can completely relate to this. There have definitely been times where I've driven from point A to point B and don't even remember how I got there, what I saw. And I was quite amazed that I even made it alive. (laughs) You know, how can you drive and focus and, you know, do all those things when your brain is completely elsewhere, but somehow you go on autopilot and you're still able to function, but you don't know anything going on around you. And a lot of us live our lives like that. A lot of us do. And it's hard because, you know, then you're missing out on the joy of the present moment. For example, last night, me and my daughter have this, um, just every night we do the same thing. So she has to get on mind play, which is a, a website where she can learn all of the phonics rules and things like that, because I feel like she missed most of that in school during the pandemic. So she's learning the phonics rules, which really helped her learn how to read because <laughs> she was not getting there through that pandemic. Um, and After she's done reading, she does a little bit of vocabulary. I typically will sit with her during this so that if she has questions or any concerns or anything like that, I can help her. And then, you know, at the end of the night, right before bed, we read together. Well, just recently, 
not only does she read to me, but I've now decided I'm going to start reading to her. So the first book that I've chosen to read to her, at least in a while, usually it's her reading to me, is um, the Harry Potter series. So we've started the very first book. Now, those are a little bit more advanced for her own reading, but it definitely allows her to kind of do that visualization that I think really helps people who struggle with reading kind of get to enjoy reading because you can visualize it in your head. And when I was her age, I struggled with reading myself. So, but being in that present moment and just sort of like watching her as she kind of interacted while I was reading and, and, you know, she's a very active child. So, you know, it was hard to even know if she was paying attention. So occasionally I'd stop and say, Hey, what, what's going on in the story right now? And she could completely tell me. So she was definitely paying attention. Um, hold on a second. I got, I have to get up and let my German shepherd out. His name is turbo. Hold on. There you go, buddy. Ooh. <laughs> All right. I'm back. But yeah, just being in those moments and being able to feel the joy and the happiness you know, is just, it's amazing. And it can really uplift your spirit and make you feel wonderful. And I'm not saying there's not a time or a place to daydream and all of that, because it's important we daydream. It helps us kind of open up our creativity, but we definitely need to make space for being present. It says here that only in the present moment can we choose to take action and how to act. We can think about how we act how we acted in the past and plan how we will act in the future, but only in the present moment can we actually decide to do something. This makes being in the present all that much more important. So mindfulness plays into this. According to the article, being present is not only about noticing what is happening in the external world. It is also about noticing what is happening in our minds. In fact, you can't have one without the other because we cannot perceive anything without the mind. This is the basis of mindfulness. Mindfulness can be defined as maintaining a moment by moment awareness of our sensations, our feelings, our thoughts without getting caught up in them. We just notice our experience and simply let it be without being attached to it or elaborating on it in any way. In other words, we don't think about what ha comes up in our minds. We can just be aware of the thoughts. When we notice the sensations, the feelings, or the thoughts, we can let it be and gently return our attention to the present moment. If you feel happy, just notice that you are feeling happy without having an opinion about it. Similarly, if you feel sad, just feel sad. One of the most helpful mindful meditation and instructions I ever received was to visualize thoughts as if they were a bubble floating up in the air and touch them gently with an Im imaginary feather so they burst, returning me to the present moment. Um, sorry about that. 
When you practice mindfulness, you tune into what you experience in the present moment. It's that experience rather than the content of the sensation, feelings, and thoughts that you are focusing on. You don't need to get hooked up by what is going on in your mind. You can just observe it. She said that for her, the mindfulness is like sitting outside on a warm, sunny day, watching children playing without feeling the urge to join them. You watch them and you smile at them without getting sucked into their game. To be more mindful, I find it helpful to think about what's going on in my mind as a storyline. The stories I tell myself about my, my experience, things like, I'm right and he's wrong because she has upset me, so I don't want to be your friend anymore. He should do more to help. Storylines reveal our beliefs and our expectations about life and contain judgments of ourselves and, our, and others. We all have storylines and there's nothing inherently wrong with them. Indeed, they are necessary because they help us make meaning of our experience. They only become problematic when we think they, they present the truth. They're really just a perception. And so what she's saying is absolutely true. Our minds can sometimes work for us and sometimes they can work against us, but it's our having control over our minds that ends up gaining us the ability to not be sucked into the drama our minds can create for us, right? So if you are in a situation where, you know, you're in a toxic work environment, and this is probably one of the, the biggest learnings that I've had in my life, and I'm not going to say that those learnings have really led to anywhere super good yet. I mean, I'm still learning as I go, but our perception of that environment is what keeps us not feeling good in that environment. It's our perception of the environment. Now, are there negative people that maybe are in the environment? Absolutely. But our environment can be what we make of it, right? So mindfulness is very important. Understanding that we're having feelings, but not becoming addicted to that feeling, that emotion. She then goes into distractions. Distractions help us to avoid unpleasant and unwanted feelings about like the global echo social crisis. But it also prevents us from being fully present. Distractions ability, distractions ability to dull pain and suffering explains why we are so addicted to it. You know, and so your addiction to these distractions can be anything, right? So some people use movies, some people use music, some people use Some of our distractions can come from reading, you know, like our novels, like Harry Potter series. Uh, there's been times where I've been so addicted to a, to a book that I was reading that I actually didn't sleep for three days straight because it was just such a great distraction. But distraction can be a really bad thing too, because then we're no longer focusing on our present. We're now focusing on these little distractions instead of trying to find the blessings we're focusing on the negatives and trying to avoid the negatives, which, you know, negative things are going to happen to us all throughout our lives. It's normal. That's a part of growing and developing and, 
without these negative things, we'd never learn. We'd never become more. All right. So then she goes into selective attention. Selective attention is about focusing on specific features of a situation to the exclusion of all the others. It's about not seeing something because we are too busy concentrating on others. This is the opposite of distraction, but like distraction, it is very powerful. For example, in the spring, I get totally obsessed by the state of my garden, overlooking the fact that spring comes much earlier now than it used to. The phenomenon of selective attention was convincingly demonstrating several years ago in an experiment called the invisible gorilla. Three in this experiment observers were asked to watch a short video of six people passing basketballs to one another and to count how many times the balls were passed. During the video, someone wearing a gorilla suit strolled into the middle of the action, faced the camera, thumped its chest, and then slowly left the, the field of view. When asked about what they had seen, about half the observers did not mention the gorilla. They had not seen it at all, and instruct, as instructed, they were, had counted the number of passes, but the gorilla was invisible to them. When the gorilla was pointed out, they were amazed they had not seen it. The experiment demonstrated that people often see only what they want to see, and that they don't see everything that's going on, and that they have no idea they are missing so much. Sometimes we can consciously choose what we give our attention to, such as the number of times the basketballs were passed, but often our choices are unconscious. These unconscious choices are influenced by our beliefs and expectations about life. So it's, it's interesting, you know, our belief systems, which, you know, I've talked about multiple times um, through my blog on thriveforwards.com as well as in this podcast, um, our belief systems is really what makes up our lives. It's quite amazing and, and it can start at any point in our life, these different belief systems. It can start at birth, you know, because of the influence from our parents or other caretakers that we might have been accustomed to being around and we would gather their belief systems. And then, you know, over time through our experiences, we create new belief systems or we learn them from other people like our bosses or our coworkers. And we kind of pick up these belief systems. Now, are all of these belief systems true? Absolutely not. Do we think they're true though in our mind's eye? Absolutely we do. And it limits us in what we are going to be able to do in our lives. And this is why limiting beliefs really need to be focused on and you need to figure out what your limiting beliefs are so you can eliminate them. It's really the only way to truly live your best life in your authentic self. So meditation is one of the things that this article mentions as a way to live in the present moment. It says that meditation drops us into the here and now and can be done by anyone. It can also be done anywhere at any time. All right, I need to let my German Shepherd in. I'll be right back. All right, come on, Turbo. What are 
All right. So many think people think that they can't meditate because their minds are just too busy. But it's not about trying to get rid of thoughts. It is about changing your relationship with those thoughts. It's about training the mind to be less attached to thoughts and examining the nature of mind, the mind itself. Meditation is really very simple, even if it's not always easy. At a minimum, all it involves is taking a few deep breaths, becoming aware of the present moment and acknowledging what is happening in your mind. It's beneficial. Not only is it calming and relaxing, it helps us become more aware of our experience and more knowledgeable about the nature of life itself. This is why meditation is part of many religious and spiritual traditions. And moreover, numerous studies have demonstrated that it has many health benefits, including lowering your blood pressure, reducing chronic pain, decreasing the incidence of headaches, insomnia, gastrointestinal distress, irritable bowel syndrome, asthma, emphysema, and depression and anxiety. Some of these effects can be experienced almost immediately. You don't have to be a long-term meditator to dedicate your life to it. <coughs> Excuse me. Even a few minutes a day can improve your health and well-being, just like you can benefit from a little jogging without being a marathon runner. So how do you meditate? So this individual in this article recommends, first of all, that you try it. And here is what they say that you should do. Find a very quiet place where you will not be disturbed. Relax in a comfortably, relax and sit comfortably with your spine erect, close your eyes, gradually become aware of the process of breathing. Pay attention to wherever you feel the breathing most clearly, either in the nostrils or the back of the throat or in the rising and the falling of your abdomen. Allow your attention to rest in the breath. Let your breathe, let your breath breathe itself. Don't try to control it. Just notice it and let it come and go naturally. Notice the sensation in your body of the feeling and thoughts in your mind. Sometimes it helps to name them. For instance, if you are thinking about what you will be doing tomorrow, you could say planning to yourself then gently return to the attention of the breath. So every single time that your mind moves away from the breath, acknowledge the thought and bring it back to the breath is basically what she's telling you to do. Remember that meditation is not about trying to get rid of sensations, feelings, or thoughts. It is about noticing them and not getting caught up in them and making them true. She says that using your senses is important. Another way to be more present is to use our sensations to the best of our ability. One of the things I recently listened to on iFit, because they've got not only the iFit where you actually exercise, but they've also got the mindfulness and the different meditational iFits that you can do. 
Um, one of them is mindful eating. It's like a series on mindful eating. So they say that for those of us who struggle with eating too much, that one of the best ways to prevent yourself from overeating is to do mindful eating, which is basically you're going to be taking that food, you're going to be smelling it, you're going to be looking at it, noticing the color of it, then you might taste it, move it around in your mouth, describe in your mind what you taste and what you feel of the food, chew it slowly, feel the different flavors, you know. So it's basically noticing all the senses that you will get, the smell, taste, touch, all of that while you're eating. And because you're mindfully eating now, your brain will go away from wanting to overeat to wanting to, it'll encourage you to want to experience the food. It's very interesting. It also helps you then chew more, which is also very good for your digestion. So it's no different in this. It's basically saying that you need to use your senses every day while you're moving through your day. You know, what are the sounds? Do you hear the rustling of the trees, the birds singing? Do you see something like maybe a squirrel or the leaves falling from the trees? Because right now that's what's happening in, you know, in this state. Um, noticing the colors. Is there different plant life that you haven't seen before? You know, is there a certain scent on the breeze? Those kind of things. You hear like a dog barking in the background. All of these things are our senses and it allows us to be more present with where we are at the moment that we're feeling and sensing these things. She then says, wonder, uh, wonder. wonder nurtures intrinsic hope. Wonder nurtures intrinsic hope. That's very unique. And I'll tell you about that in a second. Okay. So because it cuts through our storylines and our beliefs about life, it transcends thought. It penetrates us to the deepest levels of our humanity and lifts us up to the heavens. It affirms life's preciousness, power, and goodness. Wonder is about being in the presence of something truly amazing that transcends the mundane and the everyday. It humbles us, lifts us up, and expands our awareness. Wonder is the positive feeling we get when we perceive something that thrills or delights us to the very core of our being. And you know what? The best way to experience wonder is through the eyes of a child. Like right now, I'm seeing a... So this is just... Amazing. Watching the squirrels run around. This squirrel is walking across back and forth and it's doing like this little hop and like twirling its little tail. You know, it's just those little moments that if we really paid attention, it can bring such joy. Okay. Anyways, with wonder, small children are often full of wonder because everything is new to them and they have no real preconceived notions or expectations. So they say that for them, every day reveals astonishing new delights, but by the time they reach adulthood, this way of experiencing the world fades and, be and life becomes dull and routine, a burden to be endured or a series of problems to be solved. And that's kind of where we come to where we are today, you know, in adulthood. 
And I've noticed this with my child, you know, like with my daughter, when she was little, I mean, everything was fresh and new. And it was like, she was learning something new every single day or seeing something new or experiencing something new. And I loved it. I loved seeing that through her eyes. It was one of the most just extremely amazing experiences that I've ever, ever had as an adult. And occasionally I would get my own moments of wonder because when you see it through their eyes, it allows, it opens you back up to having wonder, especially with new experiences. Next, bearing witness. Just a wonder, just as wonder nurtures intrinsic hope, so does bearing witness to life. Bearing witness means seeing what is happening and then reporting what we see or what we have seen to others. It's like being a witness in court who has seen a crime being committed and then testifies about it, what they saw to the judge and jury. To be a good witness, you need to observe and describe accurately with as little interpretation, judgment, or emotional attachment as possible. Just the facts as you saw them. Bearing witness is a very powerful act because it relies on our experiences rather than what we think or feel about it. It allows us to leave out our preconceived notions and just state what it was that we observed. Whether we are bearing witness to the wonder of life or to pain and suffering, it can nurture intrinsic hope. In 1989, this lady who wrote this article addressed an international joint commissions about the health effects of toxic chemicals in the Great Lakes. At the time, she was a Canadian co-chair of the IJC's health committee and heavily pregnant with her son. Without thinking about it in advance, I used the opportunity to bear witness to the ubiquitous presence of toxic chemicals in the environment and in human beings. She looked at the commissioners and the audience of several hundred people and said, the child I'm carrying is currently receiving a heavily heavy, the heaviest load of toxic chemicals that it will receive in its lifetime. The room fell utterly silent. You could have heard a pin drop. All eyes turned to me, bulging bellies, as the power of my words resonated throughout the auditorium. Although the moment soon passed, I felt I had spoken a truth that needed to be expressed, and this made me feel stronger and more hopeful. So you can bear witness and bear truth to people, which, you know, you can do that pretty much every day, and feel more hope within yourself because now you know you've got the power to do that. The last thing that this author states is that being present in the universe is important. She concludes this chapter by considering what it means to be present to this mysterious, vast, and ever-changing universe. So far, I have talked about being present in life in a small-scale way. But what if we take a much larger perspective? What if we consider astronomers? Astronomer Carl Sagan's revelation that we are a, a way for the cosmos to know itself. What does this do to nurture intrinsic hope? The astonishing insight 
she says, makes sense to her. After all, we are made from the universe, every single atom in our bodies, the calcium in our bones, the iron in our blood, the carbon in our cells was created billions of years ago in the stars. All except atoms of hydrogen and a few other light elements that were formed even earlier, shortly after the Big Bang, about 13.7 billion years ago. And it isn't just our physical bodies. Everything humankind can know, think, feel, imagine, or dream comes from the universe. In other words, consciousness must be a property of the universe itself. In this way, the extents the existence of our species is a way for the universe to know itself. So with that being said, I also want to kind of bring up this, right? According to science, we only use about 10% of our brain. That leaves a good 90% of our brain open that they don't really know what it does, what it's there for, or what the possibilities are for it. If you spend more time being present, what's to say that we wouldn't be able to figure those things out? A lot of things have been learned in this world. So those were the six habits of hope. Again, they were being present, using mindfulness, moving away from distractions, moving away from selective attention, meditating, using our senses actively, looking at the world with wonder, bearing witness, being present to the universe. And also, you know, I just want to add one more thing, learning. If you continually spend your time learning new things, it's amazing the things that you will be able to do. All right. The next thing was, and this is just very cute, and it was on today.com. There was a two-year-old that's going viral. There's a, I guess it's currently going viral for her positive affirmations on social media. It states that this was an Australian family, family that is bringing smiles to people all over the world. They're the Dimmy family. And they have recently gone viral on social media platforms like TikTok and Instagram for posting daily affirmations from their two-year-old daughter. And so here is a video of it. I just want to play a little clip. I know that this is, again, hold on, I gotta start it. Just so you guys can hear. Most for you, here we go, two-year-old. Alexandra has a big personality and she puts it to good use with her inspirational daily affirmations. Here's a sample. So she was saying things like, you are brilliant, you are bold. And I want to say affirmations is really important to get yourself kind of up to speed with the way that you want to go in a positive direction, right? So they say positive affirmations are so freaking important. 
And a lot of people have lists of affirmations that they write down that they, you know, the best way to do it really is to write down the things that you normally say about yourself to yourself. And if you don't know that you're doing it, I can guarantee you're doing it. You are saying nasty things about yourself all the time. <clears throat> so first and foremost, write down what the, th the things that you are leading yourself to believe about yourself. So some typical ones are that I'm not enough or I can't do this or I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. Um, I'm not pretty enough, you know, those kind of things. And then you want to write the opposite of those things that you say about yourself. And that can be your positive affirmations. And the thing, and basically the science behind it is very good. The more you say positive things to yourself, whether it's forced or not, your brain will automatically start feeling those positive emotions to those positive affirmations. So one of these days I'm going to do a positive affirmation live session for everybody and maybe do one once a week so that people can get on there and say some positive affirmations for themselves. But I just wanted to say like, this was amazing. This family, Australia, the things that they're going through right now in Australia, what a great way to pass some positivity to their local community, as well as apparently the world since, you know, I just got done showing it to you guys or letting you guys listen to it. So amazing, amazing, amazing. So those were the, the two positive things that I really wanted to, to show you guys for today. Next, I wanna kinda of talk about the history of the United States, mostly because, well, hold on, before we get there, before we get there, I got a little bit ahead of myself. I need to pull out my next laptop. I've got so many laptops going right now just so that I can do this flawlessly without having my computer mess up like it did the last go live. Um, I wanted to talk about a couple of strange news topics that I found, and I found them very interesting. So number one, the first one I found on New York Post, and this one basically, um, hold on a second. This one, the, okay, New York Post, sorry, let me go back, New York Post, and it says the world's first living robot can now reproduce, scientists say, and this is by Emily Crane, and it was put out there on November 30th of this year. So what this article states is that the world's first living robot known as Xenobots can now reproduce, U.S. scientists have revealed. Details about the robots create created using the heart and skin stem cells from the African clawed frog were unveiled last year after experiments showed they could move and self-heal. Oh, this just sounds scary, doesn't it? Almost like a, a science fiction movie. Now the scientists at Tufts University, the University of Vermont and Harvard who made the Xenobots say the tiny blobs can also self-replicate. The results of the new research were published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science on Monday. Experiments showed that the organisms can swim out into their dish, find other single cells, and assemble baby Xenobots. A few days later, the babies become new Xenobots that look and move just like the initial creations. 
The new Xenobots can then go out and self-replicate again, according to scientists. Xenobots, which are less than a millimeter wide, are designed on a computer and hand-assembled. The scientists said that they were stunned to learn that the tiny blobs could spontaneously replicate. They said, people have thought for quite a long time that we've worked out all the ways that life can reproduce or replicate. But this is something that never has been observed before, said Douglas Blackiston, who works on the study. I don't know about you guys, but this sounds a little bit crazy. It says, this profound, or this is profound, added Michael Levin, a co-leader of the research. These cells can be can have the genome of a frog, but feed, but freed from becoming tadpoles. They use their collective intelligence to do something astounding. The team said the new research could be beneficial for advancements in regenerative medicine. If we knew how to tell collections of cells to do what we want them to do, ultimately that's regenerate, med re that's regenerative medicine. That's the solution to trauma injuries, birth defects, cancer, aging, according to Levin. All of these different problems are here because we don't know how to predict and control what groups of cells are going to build. Xenobots are a new platform for teaching us. Hmm. All right, so the Xenobots, you guys, if you have any thoughts or feelings about this, I would love to hear about it in the comments. So please, please, please comment about this one. I mean, this sounds like, I don't know. This sounds like a sci-fi thriller <laughs> starting. And by the way, I'm a science fiction guru. So that's, you know, hmm. if I'm not mistaken, my next one is... Okay, so this is from financialtimes.com. And this talks about, and this is from the energy sector, nuclear fission. This is the name of that article, nuclear fission, why the race to harness the power of the sun just sped up. Advances in technology and funding have sparked optimism in an area that has promised much but delivered little in six decades. So according to this, which is kind of a com combined effort of Tom Wilson in Oxford and Ian Bott in London, and this article came out November 24th, <clears throat> a nervous excitement hangs in the air. Half a dozen scientists sitting behind the computer screens, flicking between panels as they make last minute checks, go and make the, the gun dangerous, one of them tells a technician who slips into an adjacent chamber, a low beep sounds, ready, says the person running the test. The control room falls silent, then boom. Next door, three kg of gunpowder have compressed 1,500 liters of hydrogen to 10,000 times atmospheric pressure, launching a projectile down the nine meter barrel of a two-stage light gas gun at the speed of 6.5 kilometers per second and about 10 times faster than a bullet from a rifle. 
On the monitors, the scientists are checking the next stage when the projectile slams into the target, a small transparent block carefully designed to amplify the force of the collision. The projectile needs to hit its mark perfectly flush. The slightest rotation risks derailing the carefully calibrated physics. Thank God, exclaims the technician after reviewing a video playback of the impact of the scientific artillery. It was a perfect shot. Those in the room at first light fusion in a business park outside the English city of Oxford had just witnessed another hopeful step in a 60 year mission to answer one of science's most complex problems, how to harness the fusion reaction that powers the sun to generate clean, limitless electricity on earth. A nuclear fusion reaction. In a nuclear fusion reaction, the repulsive electrostatic forces keeping the nuclei of a light atom apart are overcome and they fuse together to form helium. This requires extraordinarily high pressure and temperature. So the potential of light fusion first pioneered by the Soviet Union has trans tantalized scientists for decades, but has always seemed just out of reach. Fusion is probably the greatest technical challenge humanity has ever taken on. Says Ar Arthur Terrell, whose book, The Star Builders, charted the decades long effort by engineers. Physicists and mathematicians to achieve what some still believe is impossible. How close it is depending not on time, but on the will, the investment and the commitment of resources to actually get there. A growing number of private companies including First Light, are now hoping to commercialize those years of public research by proving fusion power can work and connecting it to the grid as soon as the 2030s. I mean, that's like right down the road, man. We are 10 years out from 20, well, nine years out from 2031 or 2030. So they're hoping to fuse hydrogen atoms together to create energy greater as great as the sun. I feel like this was also in a movie somewhere. Like maybe it was, oh yeah, it was. If I'm not mistaken, it was in one of the Spider-Man movies. That crazy scientist with all the arms, the robotic arms that he had fused to his spine. And he was trying to do the same thing. He was trying to create the, the, the fusion in a lab, which created uh, what ended up being like a sun with massive amounts of like um, gravity, right? And everything started getting sucked into it. Yeah, he almost killed everybody. So this just sounds great. And, you know, what's really interesting is I found this article and I had just gotten done talking to my niece who is going to 
to school for sustainability. And she was really excited about this because, you know, right now she says they can only really test it out in space because of the vacuum of space or whatever. And they can't really do it in a lab yet because, you know, if you have to do it in like a vacuum or, or what have you under great pressure. According to this, it sounds like they're trying to do this, though, on Earth. It says, unlike nuclear fission, when atoms are split, fusion does not produce significant radioactive waste and could never re result in a nuclear accident such as Chern Chernobyl. Sorry, I'm trying to turn my music back on because I just got a, a call from somebody I don't know, so I never answer those. The most efficient chemical input for fusion is deuterium and tritium are also widely available. Just one glass of the fuel created by the process has the energy potential of 1 million gallons of oil and could generate, depending on the fusion approach, as much as 9 million kilowatt hours of electricity, enough to power a home for more than 800 years is what the scientists have estimated. Those characteristics is proponents say mean fusion by providing cheap, unlimited zero emission electricity could genuinely save the earth. I couldn't be more optimistic, says Silicon Valley venture capitalist Sam Altman, who recently invested $375 million in the U.S. fusion startup Helion. In addition to being our best path out of climate crisis, less expensive energy is transformational for society. So, I mean, this sounds all great and everything, but I would love to know which they don't talk about in this article at all, I would love to know what are the risks? You know, I mean, looking at the risks we have currently, we know Chernobyl, whatever, but what risks do we have of trying to create this kind of chemical reaction in a lab here on earth? If they're saying that it creates energy of the, of the sun, I mean, the sun's energy is huge. So until they tell me what the risks are, <coughs> I don't, I don't want to hear about this uh, climate change crisis being solved by this. You know, the solution cannot be more risky than the problem that the, the solution is trying to eliminate, in my opinion. All right. So we've got nuclear, nuclear fusion, and then we've got the world's first living robots. Whew. I wonder what they're going to come up with next. All right, next, I've got an article that states, is society coming apart? This is by The Guardian. And basically what they're stating here is that this guy, Boris Johnson, self-isolated in a flat on down, uh, Downing Street, and he released a video of himself that he had taken reassuring Britons that they would get through the pandemic together. One thing he said, one thing that I think the coronavirus crisis has already proven is that there really is such a thing as society. 
the prime minister announced confirming the existence of society while talking to him, to his phone, alone in a room. Basically, you know, what he's saying is, is that even though we are fully isolated, even with all of these compounding fears and threats and everything that we've been going through, that it has brought out the humanity in a lot of people. And though there's been a lot of change in our world, I don't know. We've still been isolated though. And we still, according to this article, have a lot of different problems that we need to solve. But he did say this, by alienation, I mean the state of mind that can find a society order remote, incomprehensible or fraudulent, beyond real hope or desire, inviting apathy, boredom, or even hostility. The individuals not only do not feel a part of the social order. He has lost interest in being a part of it for constantly enlarging number of persons, including significantly young people of high school and college age. That state, uh, that state of alienation has become profoundly influential in both behavior and thought. Not all the ma manufactured symbols of togetherness, the ever ready program of human reflection, patio festivals, in suburbia and other quadrennial crusades for presidential candidates hide the fact that the millions of persons, such institutes, institutions as state, political party, business, church, labor unions, and even family have become remote and increasingly difficult to, to give any part of oneself to. So though we've become so remote, this is I mean, this has really done a lot of harm to us as a society. I mean, we are afraid to be around each other or we were. There's still people who are afraid to be around each other due to, you know, the, the constant COVID fear. Um, people are not wanting to return to work. Now some people feel they can't return to work. People are getting fired. People are quitting. There's just this whole societal breakdown that, you know, we, we find ourselves in, and though it seems profoundly greater than one person can ever really solve by themselves, I do think we can come together and we can solve this problem. We can become a society again where we know and we, we love our neighbors, our family, but I think it really does start with stopping ourselves from having all of these noxious beliefs about each other. You know, the fear mongering, the hate crimes, the just generalized hate. I mean, we've got groups going out there committing crimes and nobody's doing anything about it. We're trying to defund the police. I mean, all of these different things that have happened over the last two years, it almost seemed perfectly surreal because you're thinking to yourself, like, who's coming up with this nonsense, right? Who's coming up with it? I mean, parts of Atlanta had been just destroyed by people that, you know, were saying, they were saying it was people in Atlanta, but really it wasn't. These people came from outside of Atlanta and, you know, there was, oh, it was just, it was an, it's an amazing thing to watch when we're allowing, 
and I, I really hate this terminology, but we're allowing the inmates to run the asylum. You know, we're allowing these crazy people to go out there and just do their biddings and no one's stopping them. And then when people do stop them, things like the Rittenhouse situation occurs. You know, he almost, they attempted to say that he was in the wrong for protecting himself and protecting the property of other people from these absolute terrorists. Just saying. So with that, that kind of perfectly leads me into the Jeffrey Epstein trial that is going on right now. Um, with the Ghislaine Maxwell, I think is how you pronounce her name. So it started yesterday. Um, they have the jury, they had the jury pre-picked out. And this is the opening statements from both the prosecutors as well as the defense. And I thought it was worthy of going over. The prosecution's opening statement was, and this is, by the way, on abcnews.com, and the actual um, title of this is Jeffrey Epstein Associate um, Ghislaine Maxwell's Trial Begins, Key Takeaways from Day One. So they have five men and seven women as part of the jury. The prosecution opened with this. I want to tell you about a young girl named Jane. Prosecutors have alleged that Maxwell played a key role in a multi-state sex trafficking scheme in which she allegedly befriended and later enticed and groomed multiple minor girls to engage in sexual acts with Epstein. They said that... She was also at times present or involved in the abuse herself. <clears throat> Jane, one of these three alleged minor victims who were expected to testify under, um, she was a 14 year old when she reported, reportedly met Maxwell and Epstein at a summer camp. She said that it was like a nightmare that would last for years. This man and this woman were predators. She knew what was going to happen to these girls. There were times when she was like in a room, she was in the room when it happened. So that was kind of the opening statement. So they kind of led in to state that, okay, this woman is an adult. She's an adult. She has complete capability of making decisions on her own. And yet she partook in these evil flipping situations and joined Epstein for this. I'm going to get into a little bit of her history in a second because it's in this article. But first, let me tell you what the defense said, which I think is astronomically stupid. Just saying. So basically... It says Jeffrey Epstein manipulated the world around him and the people around him, including Ghislaine. Ghislaine Maxwell is on trial because of her association with Jeffrey Epstein. 
They also sought to understand the forthcoming testimony of the alleged minor victims in the indictment, calling their stories thin and suggesting that the accusers had been influenced by lawyers, media, and money. False memories can be created, they stated. And each accuser has shaken the money tree of the Epstein's estate. So this is what the defense attorney is riding on, is people thinking that these victims who were brought into sex slavery at the age of 14, that they're going to somehow convince us that these girls at the age of 14 vindictively joined Epstein for money. How is that possible? That's ridiculous. At the age of 14, you barely even know who you are as a female. <laughs> you don't even know what to believe. You don't know anything. I mean, I can even state that as being in my early 20s. I had no idea what I was doing. I knew nothing about the world around me or what it took to be an adult. I had no idea. So even having the preconceived notion that they would think that a 14-year-old girl would have any idea about anything is flipping wild, flipping wild. And then when you're thrown into a situation that you're enslaved, basically, and used for sex, I just can't see that. Really, having anything, I just can't see them growing up after that. You know what I mean? Like, I cannot see those children from the age of 14 to adulthood really ever being able to grow and mature like a normal adult would. So that's just my take on it. But, you know, what do you think? Tell me in the comment section. So <clears throat> a little bit about Miss Miss Maxwell. She's 59 years old at this time. She is the youngest daughter of Robert Maxwell, the notorious British publishing baron whose rags to riches story captivated England. Educated at Oxford, she lived an extravagant life among the British elite until her father's business empire collapsed in the wake of his death in 1991. She then relocated to New York looking for a fresh start and was soon seen in the company of an enigmatic multimillionaire, Epstein a one-time math teacher turned investor who socialized with powerful politicians, celebrities, and business leaders around the world. So a couple thoughts I have here with this one is first of all, so this woman is from the elites, the top of the top, the most wealthy. So to think that she has no prior knowledge of these kind of things when there have been connections with Epstein in like pretty much many different elitist groups around the world. So there's that. So she knew, she knew <laughs> heavily what this kind of thing was. I mean, there's no way she couldn't have. And then now just thinking about how Epstein's start was, right? He was a multimillionaire. He was a math teacher to start out with, and then he turned into an investor. And somehow he became socialized or became part of the social grouping of the powerful politicians, celebrities, and business leaders. How does one come from rags to riches in that way? 
and then turn into this sex trade enthusiast with an island where he kind of, you know, helped produce this world of just grossness. How does someone go from that to to where he was before he died, if he died? You know, some people think he hasn't died. So anyways, it just seems as though it's obvious who's guilty here. It's obvious who's, you know, and if they don't come to that conclusion, it's going to blow my mind. It's going to blow my mind. I remember I was in my late twenties when I first heard about sex slave trade and all of that. I was on my way. I just had my baby girl. I mean, she was a newborn and I was working out of Rockford, Illinois and driving back and forth from my house to Rockford. And I lived in Southern Wisconsin at the time. Um, and all of a sudden what came across the radio was just astounding to me. There was this news broadcast stating that there was a real problem in Rockford with sex slave trade and that people were being abducted regularly out of, out of Rockford. And they, you know, they said that the worst part is, is that once they get them out of the country, basically there's no way to find them. It is just, they're gone. And so they were having a community live session at their community hall for all people, all residents of, of Rockford, Illinois, to come and hear what was going on and how to protect themselves. And the things to look for when, you know, when being, I guess, followed by these trade people, right? Because they look for their victims, obviously, and in very local community areas like the grocery store. And I remember also around that time, um, Walmarts came up a lot as being places that people were easily getting abducted from. And there was this huge debacle about how Walmart was refusing at the time to put up um, video cameras in their, in their parking lots. And what was really interesting is there was a Walmart right in my town in Southern Wisconsin. And there was a time where I actually was followed out to my car. I was young. I was in my twenties and this is before this, right? Before I even knew that this stuff was even happening. But you know, when you are out there and you have, you feel threatened when things don't really feel right, we do have this sense it's an innate sense that you know that something's just not right, that you don't feel safe. Well, I had that situation. I went in to buy a bottle of wine because I was going over to a friend's house. And um, I went into Walmart to buy the bottle of wine. And it was really late at night. I had left work kind of late and had gone to Walmart to pick up this bottle of wine before heading over to my friend's house. And I'm in line and there's this guy who just keeps kind of just trying to get me in conversation, this really creepy guy. And he seemed like he was much older than me. He just seemed very creepy. So uh, the, the lady at the counter even was kind of like giving me this look like, oh, God, this is weird, you know. And um, finally, you know, he was in front of me, by the way. He wasn't behind me. He was in front of me. And so he kind of got his stuff and he was done. And like he walked away and I didn't really see where he went. I tried not to pay attention, although... 
in hindsight, I really should have really kept my eye on where he was headed because, you know, of what happened after. But this girl's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm like, that guy's just really weird. And she's like, yeah, he was really creeping me out too. And then um, I go to walk out to my car and I get this distinct sense. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't even know where this guy went. I don't know what direction he went. Um, I don't know how, you know, how long this guy had even been following me. Like I knew nothing. He could have been following me around that whole store looking for wine. I don't know. And so I go out to my car and as I'm walking out, he's leaning up against one of the walls on the outside area. And so at that time I like pick up the pace and I unlock my car from far away and I jump in, lock the doors and I took off, you know, so luckily you know, I was at least aware enough that I saw him. If I, if I hadn't have noticed him on my way out, who knows what would have happened? I mean, I had this bottle of wine. I could have hit him over the head with it if I would have known, but if he would have grabbed me from behind and being that I don't know self-defense, you know, at the time I knew nothing about self-defense, which is another thing. I really think that everyone should take self-defense at some time in their life. And that's what I'm hoping to do. And my daughter, she's getting her self-defense. She's been in karate for three years where they do self-defense as well as the karate kicks and punches and all the different combinations. But they definitely show them how to get out of things, which is amazing. And I think everyone should do that for their children and for themselves. But at that time, all of a sudden I realized like, hey, you know, years after that incident, this is a real problem. This is a real problem. Fast forward a couple of years and I moved down here to Georgia, not realizing that the Atlanta airport is actually was one of the biggest hubs for transporting victims out of the United States into sex trade, into sex slave trade. So just another huge, huge thing that, you know, being aware of these things is important. Letting it control your life, not so much, but being aware of your surroundings, very important. So I look forward to seeing where this whole like Jeffrey Epstein thing goes. Um, I really hope that it goes the way that it should because what these people were involved in is just horrendous and it's against humanity, really. I mean, they're at, these are acts against humanity. All right, now to go into my next thing. Let me bring this back over. All right. So, obviously, we see a lot of our rights being taken away right now. A lot of bad things happening, a lot of mandates, a lot of um, knee jerk reactions that are kind of leaving us a little speechless, I think, as a country, especially in certain areas where people really don't want. And, you know, let me say this. The same thing happens in leadership, right? If you lose the trust of the people who report to you, they're not going to back you anymore. So as a leader, our job in leadership is to instill trust and be trustworthy for the people who report to us. That means we don't lie to them. We don't hold back information. We don't you know, do nasty, horrible things to them. We don't sell them out. We don't blame them, you know. These are the, some of the things that kind of engage in, in building trust is that we back them. We support them. We don't do anything nefarious or, 
or what may seem or feel to them as being something that makes us untrustworthy, right? So how did our country begin? It began as we were a colony that came to the United States or to America at the time. I'm not sure if we really were called the United States. And we came because I think most of us at the time, most of the, the people who moved to the United States at the very beginning were actually criminals. So we were transported over here, if I'm not mistaken. So don't quote me on that. I'll look that up later. But fast forward some time now, suddenly we've got 13 colonies um, or we're starting to create colonies. We're still pretty much being controlled by, by Britain, right? And so the Boston Tea Party happens. And the Boston Tea Party was a political protest that occurred in De on December 16th, 1773. If you want to look this up, it's on history.com. And it was put out there and updated. The original release of this was October 27th, 2009. It was updated September 25th of 2020. And the, the title of this is the Boston, the Boston Tea Party. So on December 16th of 1773, in Boston, Massachusetts, American colonists were frustrated and angry at Britain for imposing taxation without representation. So what did the Americans do? The Americans decided they weren't going to take it anymore. They didn't want to be overtaxed. They didn't want to be treated badly. They didn't want to have, they didn't want to have no say anymore, right? I mean, right now at this time, these 13 colonies were being tormented and, you know, and enforced this, this taxation that would make them stay basically poor. Right. And also they, you know, there's other things, so I'm just going to read this, but then there's other things that kind of tie into this. So what happened was, was that they took 342 chests of tea that were imported by the British East India company into the Harbor and they, basically poured them into the water. And the, the whole point of this, and it was the first, first major events that the Americans took in defiance to the British rule over the colonists. It showed Great Britain that Americans wouldn't take taxation and tyranny sitting down. And they rallied the American pro patriots across the 13 colonies to fight for independence. So that was the whole point of the Boston Tea Party was to kind of rile everyone up, get people wanting to fight for their freedom. And what kind of led up to that was that in 1760s, British, the Britain uh, was deep in, in debt. So the British Parliament imposed a series of taxes on the American colonists to help pay for those debts. So... Interestingly enough, what's happening here in America right now? Well, our country's really horribly in debt, just like every other country, but our country is in horrible debt. And so what is happening? They keep raising taxes every single year and imposing more and more things on us, right? That we cannot tell them no against. 
So this started in 16 or in 1765, the Stamp Act was created, which taxed colonists on virtually every piece of printed paper they used from playing cards and business licenses to newspaper and legal documents. The Townshed Act, which then happened in 1767, so two years later, went a step further and taxed essentials such as paint, paper, glass, lead, and tea. So the British government felt the taxes were fair since much of the debt was earned fighting wars on the colonists' behalf. The colonists, however, disagreed. They were furious at being taxed without having any representation in Parliament and felt it was wrong for Britain to impose taxes on them to gain revenue. And then there was also this, the Boston Massacre, which enraged colonists. This happened on March 5th, 1770. A street brawl happened in Boston between American colonists and the British soldiers, later known as the Boston Massacre. The fight began after the unruly group of colonists, frustrated with the presence of the British soldiers in their streets, flung some snowballs, ice, and oyster shells at the British uh, Centennial Guarding, the Boston Customs House. Reinforcements arrived and opened fire on, on the mob, killing five colonists and wounding six of them. The Boston Massacre and its fallout further incited this colonist rage towards Britain. The Tea Act was imposed then. Britain eventually revealed the taxes it had imposed on the colonists, except the tea tax. It wasn't about to give up a tax revenue on nearly 1.2 million pounds of tea the colonists drank each year. So in protest, the colonists boycotted tea sold by Britain East Indian Company and smuggled in Dutch tea, leaving Britain East Indian Company with millions of pounds of surplus tea and facing bankruptcy. Once that was over, in May of 1773, the British Parliament passed the Tea Act, which allowed British East Indian Company to sell tea to the colonies duty-free and much cheaper than other tea companies. <coughs> but still the tax, the tea, they still tax the tea when it reached the colonial ports. So Parliament decided they wanted to save the tea company, but they still wanted to impose a tax on the company, on the colonists themselves. So from there, more tea smuggling occurred. Although the cost of smuggling tea soon surpassed the tea from the British, and that was even with the added tea tax, they still were ended up having to pay more for the smuggled tea. But still, with the help of the prominent tea smugglers, such as John Hancock and Sam, Samuel Adams, who protested taxation without representation, but also wanted to protect their tea smuggling operation, colonists continued to rail against the tea tax and Brit Britain's control over their interests. So then the Sons of Liberty were formed 
which were a group of colonial merchants and tradesmen founded to protest the Stamp Act and other forms of taxation. The group of revolutionists included prominent patriots such as Benedict Arnold, Patrick Henry, and Paul Revere, as well as Adams and Hancock. Led by Adams and the Sons of Liberty held meetings, rallies against the British Parliament and protested the Griffin's wharf arrival of Dartmouth, a British East Indian Company ship carrying tea. By September 16th of 1773, Dartmouth had been joined by her sister ships, Beaver and Eleanor, all three ships loaded with tea from China. That morning, as thousands of colonists convened on the wharf and the surrounding streets, a meeting was held at the Old South Meeting House, where a large group of colonists voted to refuse to pay the taxes on the tea and allow the tea to be unloaded, stored, sold, or used. Ironically, the ships were built in America and owned by the Americans. So the governor, Thomas Hutchison, refused to allow the ships to return to Britain and ordered the tea tariff be paid and the tea unloaded. The colonists refused and Hutchison never offered a satisfactory compromise. So then what happened? Well, the Boston Tea Party. The night a large group of men, many reportedly members of the Sons of Liberty, disguised themselves in Native American garb, boarded the docks, ships, and threw 342 chests of tea into the water. The aftermath of this was that while some imported colonist leaders like John Adams were thrilled to learn of the harbor, the Boston Harbor, and cover, uh, was covered with tea leaves, others were not. In June of 1774, George Washington wrote, the cause of Boston ever will be considered the cause as the cause of America. But this personal view of the event were far different. He voiced strong disapproval of their conduct in destroying the tea and claims uh, that the Boston people were mad. So the Boston Tea Party was basically due to their desire to not be taxed unfairly by the British Parliament. Now, we have no idea, or I don't know personally, if Britain themselves were taxing their own people or if they were only taxing the colonies that were sent to the United States. But obviously the people or some of the people who were in the colonies felt that this was very unfair. So from that, soon after, in 1776, they decided to create a committee to draft the Declaration of Independence from Britain because, you know, they wanted to form their own their own government where they could have a say-so. So on June 11, 1776, and this is found on ushistory.org, Declaration of Independence, and this is a chronolo- chronolo- or, yeah, chronological um, depiction of what the events that took place leading up to the Declaration of Independence and then the Revolutionary War. 
So Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, and Robert R. Livingston appointed to a committee to draft the Declaration of Independence. By July 4th of 1776, Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence in the morning of a bright, sunny, but cool Philadelphia day. John Dunlap prints the Declaration of Independence, then prints these prints are now called Dunlap uh, broadsides. 24 copies are known to exist, two of which are in a, the Library of Congress. One of these was Washington's personal copy of the Declaration of Independence. By July 8th, the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence was done in Philadelphia. By July 9th, Washington orders the Declaration of Independence to be read before the American army in New York. And in July 19th of 1776, Congress orders the Declaration of Independence engrossed, officially inscribed, and signed by members. And by January 18th of 1777, Congress now sitting in Baltimore, Maryland, orders the signed copies of the Declaration of Independence printed by Mary Catherine Goddard of Baltimore be sent to the states. So by the way, the states being, you know, the 13 colonies, there were not that many states at the time. In fact, the states that there that were there at the time were Georgia, Maryland, Delaware, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New York, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, New Jersey, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts. Those were the states that were here at the time. All the other states hadn't been formed yet. All right, so that is the very starts of my readings of the of American history for you guys. And if you are liking this content, please like, subscribe, and share. Um, and I'm going to be coming on at different times, as I said, because I'd like to see when the most amount of people are here right now, it's 1105 and doesn't seem like we've had many listeners. So I will be posting this on my podcast though, so that people can still get to it, read it, listen to it, like subscribe, you know, all of that. <laughs> and, um, during my next episode, I'm going to go over, um, the declaration of independence I'm going to talk about the transcript itself and what it stated and why that is important to us even still today. All right. So I hope to see more people in here. Um, and this is very important stuff, guys. I'm going to say this right now. On the 4th of July, every year, there are news stations that go and mock us because, you know, they go around asking citizens, especially the youth, um, when the Declaration of Independence was signed or why July 4th is what it is. And there are very few people who can answer those questions. You know, very few people are being taught the true history of our country. And I think that without knowing the true history of our country, we cannot prevent the reoccurrence of some of the nasty things that have happened to reoccur, which is why I think we're seeing what we're seeing right now in our country. So, Stick with me. I'm going to go through the um, Declaration of Independence next and 
it might be this week, it might be next week. Um, I still haven't gotten the schedule down. I think once I know when most of the listeners are gonna come on and listen. Um, and if you have a time that you think would be best, please state that in the comments. Uh, please look at my website, thriveforwards.com. I offer uh, not only a blog there, but also um, life coaching. If you are interested in being life, you know, having a life coach, I am certified in that um, for many different things. I specifically feel that a lot of Americans do not, Americans, a lot of people in general do not um, live their best life because they spend too much time on things that they need to really just work through and get out of their system and start going towards a, a better direction in their life. So I have spent a lot of time studying the psych, you know, the psychological effects that, you know, the, that human nature has on us and how to get around it. So if you're interested in that, please sign up for a um, 30 minute free session with me where we talk about different topics and try to see what direction you want to go in. It's free. <laughs> that session is free. So I hope to, to get some people signed up for that, as well as um, I have a blog that I also post in regularly. So um, the content there is, once again, it's all about different parts of life, right? It could be, you just never know what you're going to get with me. So go ahead and check out my blog. If you like that, like, share, subscribe again. Um, all right. So I hope to see you guys again later. You guys have a great rest of your day. This is um, November 30th, 2021 at 11.08, signing out. Bye, guys.